and welcome to the Horizon Church podcast. Horizon Church is a Christ-centered, word-based and spirit-led church. We are so happy to bring this week's message to you. And on behalf of our pastors, Brad and Ali Bonhomme and the Horizon Church team, we pray it's a blessing to you. Hey, I hope you guys are uh, ready for a fun night tonight. We are at week two of a two-week series on end times. So we're going to have some fun. And if you came this week, but we're not here last week, um, you know, just I'm going to help summarise a little bit about what we learned last week. But it was sort of like a soft entrance, a soft, you know, introduction to the topic. So you are sort of going to get like the full fire hydrant effect today. And uh, we're opening up the throttle a little bit. But, uh, but we're going to have a lot of fun. Well, last week, we started the discussion and we talked about how even just when the topic is raised, there are different responses and how these responses are pretty much determined by how we've interacted with the subject up until now, whether it's been through family or through media or through our own understanding of scripture or whatever it may be, the church we were raised up in. Uh, All of these things play a part in shaping how we respond to this discussion And uh, we also decided in that that our beliefs are so important because our beliefs determine our actions. Now, as Christians, our beliefs are influenced or they're led by Scripture, by God Himself through the Bible, helping us to understand how He sees the world. And what we do is we bring our understanding into alignment with God, who He is, and what He has planned for our life. And our, our beliefs are informed by our faith in Jesus. And the more clearly we see Jesus, the more clearly we understand God, the more we are like Him, the more we are able to reflect His image, the more we're able to fulfill our original mandate, which is to be the image carriers of God in this world. And if we choose some things and leave out other things from the Bible in our understanding and exploration of who God is, we start to form a picture of God that's not accurate. It's not true. It's not real. It's, it's not God as He actually is. It's actually God as we created Him to be. <laughs> or how we would like him to be. And we, we sort of inevitably or accidentally even make that decision when we decide, I don't like that part of the Bible, I'm gonna put that to the side, I'm gonna focus on these parts, these are my favorite parts. Well, you're actually following yourself, not following God. And so as Christians, we need to actually be willing to come to scripture with an open heart to say, God, reveal yourself to me, show yourself to me. You know, as Christians, we believe that God is eternal, that God is the creator, and we also believe that God is relational by His nature. And you know, God, being outside of time Himself, has actually provided insight into the entire span of creation and human history through the Bible, from inception to completion, that which has happened in our understanding of time and that which has not yet happened. He is over it all. He is aware of it all. And He has actually provided insight for us to engage with, which gives us the whole picture. And knowing, knowing where we come from, which is what we read you know, through the creation story of God's intention and His heart to have relationship with people, knowing where we come from redefines our understanding of who we are. But not only knowing where we come from, but also knowing where we are going also helps us make sense of our present. It gives meaning and purpose to our current situation and direction for our future. So the books and the passages of the Bible that speak of these end things, they're actually given to us by God, not that we may fear the end of time, but that as believers, we may be filled with hope in God, having an awareness 
of the goal towards which God is bringing his creation regardless of what we are facing right now on earth. Now, tonight, to help you guys understand a little bit about what we're talking about, our team have put together this image. It's a, it's a basic timeline of what we can see from Scripture when it talks about uh, human history. So we see here at the very beginning, we see that the dot, dot, dot means that God is beyond creation, but we pick up the story in the Bible at creation, and then we have the primeval history, which is the story up until Abraham. And then the Bible takes a turn, and now we begin to engage with Abraham and the descendants of Abraham through the people of Israel. And through the rest of the Old Testament, we're tracking along with the people of Israel, which are God's chosen representatives, through which He makes Himself known on the earth. And they are awaiting a Messiah who would come and restore them to what they think is their former glory. And along comes Jesus, and they start to hear that He's the Messiah. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't exactly look like the Messiah they were expecting. Because they were expecting someone to come and take over uh, rulership and become a worldly ruling uh, authority on behalf of the Jewish people. And they were ready to stick it to the other people, stick it to those people who weren't Jewish. They were like, come on now, it's our turn. But God, God had a bigger plan, not just for the Jews, and get this, not just for all humanity, but for all creation. See, when you think you think big, (laughs) God thinks bigger. And the Jews thought they knew what the Messiah would do. But when he came, he actually had a plan, not just for the Jews, not just for humanity, but in fact, for all creation. And we see Jesus, uh, who is God, God himself come to earth. And uh, when we talk about this, just let me get a drink for a moment. You know, this is what is referred to as the incarnation when God himself came and became man. He interrupts human history and he actually does what none of us were able to do. (laughs) And through his life, then through his death, and eventually through his resurrection, we actually see the beginning of a new kingdom take place. You see, Jesus came and where Adam was tempted by the devil and he failed, Jesus gets taken into the wilderness after his baptism and he gets tempted and guess what? He withstands the temptation. And you know what? The amazing thing is the very next parable that he shares when coming out of the wilderness, you know what it is? Unless you tie up a strong man, you cannot rob the house. And then he goes about robbing the house of the enemy, which is the world and the the, the issues in this world, of all of the brokenness. He starts to meet people. And guess what? God himself starts to invade the darkness. And we start to see the the plans and the purposes and the, the, the... hold of the enemy, start to lose grip on people as they get healed, as they're set free from demonic oppression, as the light of God comes into this world and starts to work its way around. And Jesus starts teaching about the kingdom of God is at hand. And he starts to lead his disciples in this path, knowing that he will soon go back to be with the Father. And when he does, he will send the Holy Spirit. And so we have Jesus eventually comes to this place where he gives himself up on the cross to die in place of mankind, humankind. And what happens is the one thing that the enemy had on people, their sin, that he could use to condemn them and cut them off from God, Jesus deals with it himself on the cross. God becomes a solution to the sin problem of humanity and all who place their faith in him are able to receive their righteousness, not by their works, but by the grace of God. And they all of a sudden become bearers of light. And when Jesus, who died, exhausts all sin, all evil, and all death in his own being, 
rises again victorious over those things that would have bound and controlled his people. All of a sudden, what we see here is a new kingdom at work. And Jesus returns to the Father and he says, it's good for you that I go because when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter two. And when the Holy Spirit comes down, the people of God are filled with the Spirit and they begin to go and preach in the power of God. And Jesus himself said in John 14, that you will do the things that I have done and even greater things than these you will see. Because we now have God with us and we are his agents of reconciliation as the Bible puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter five for the rest of of the world. Jesus' birth, life, death and victory over evil and death witnessed by His resurrection open up the new possibility for you and I, broken humanity, through faith in Jesus to be brought into His kingdom. How good is this Colossians 1 verse? It says, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of His Son, where there is redemption, the forgiveness of of sin. This is the reality of why Jesus came, so that you and I might not be left to the darkness, might not be subject to the evil, but might be above that in Christ, a member of His new kingdom, a kingdom that has no end. And where we exist right now is in these last days with a crossover of two kingdoms. The second coming of Christ that we learn about in the Bible is the consummation of His redemptive plans and the doing away with all evil. It is the end of history, but it's the beginning of the new creation. And what's so important about us going to these texts is we need to remember who wrote them and who inspired them and who it was that, that had these penned. They are the people who saw Jesus in His resurrected state. So for the people that wrote these Letters, the people that wrote these scriptures, they're not talking about a theory or an idea or something that someone said, you know, with empty, as empty promises. They have seen, felt, touched the tangible reality of the resurrection. It's not a game for them. They are expecting it and they are expecting it in its fullness. They're expecting it physically. They're expecting the reality of this new creation to be seen because they have literally touched it with their own hands. And so when we come to texts that talk about these last days and the purposes of God and His plan that He has for all creation, we need to enter them with this like excitement and passion from people to hear from people who have actually experienced and witnessed Jesus in His resurrected state. So end times, hey? <laughs> you know, one of the reasons we did and are doing this series is because it's a response to the question that some are asking right now out in our society is this the last days? Is this the end times? <laughs> you know, last week we looked at Jesus' words in response to this and we asked what Jesus said to that and his response included there'll be false messiahs, wars, rumours of wars. He's telling about all these signs and things you can expect to happen in these last days. Famines, earthquakes, great trials and tribulations for believers through which He calls us all to endure. Now, does it make sense why some people looking at the world today, reading the news and being aware of everything we've been through over the last couple of years with this pestilence, <laughs> you know, the pandemic, and then the wars, and then the rumours of wars that became wars, and no wonder people are asking the question like, is this what Jesus was talking about? Because it just lines up so, you know, amazingly. These things he talked about, we feel them. And Jesus taught us that these things would happen. 
and he implores his followers that in the midst of what's happening around you, don't get distracted from what I have called you to because you have a purpose, an assignment that you have been given by the Holy Spirit. And we ended last week looking at something Jesus quoted from the book of Daniel, which is an example of apocalyptic literature, and it says this. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Do you know, after making this statement, this reference to a... To a um, to a prophecy from the book of Daniel, Jesus himself says, let the reader understand. And that's what we're trying to do with this series. Jesus, you implore us to understand what's going on here. We best not walk past this comment just because we don't like it or we don't understand how it works. We should actually take the time to understand this. This is your directive to us. And so tonight, we are going to be diving in to some of these more difficult to understand scriptures And we're asking, how possibly can we understand what is being revealed to us? So I think we should pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help. How's that? Well, Lord, I thank you so much for tonight, God, for a space in which we can have this discussion, where we can visit Scriptures and go on a journey of understanding, God, knowing that we won't come to all answers, God, or a complete understanding in one night, but knowing, God, that this is something that is worth our time and energy, For you have told us to understand and you have encouraged us to look into these things and that as we have a correct view of these things, God, it helps us to locate ourselves and understand what it is you're calling us to in the present. So I pray for your Holy Spirit to walk alongside us, to teach us all things and to reveal that which is yet to come in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, the most central book to this area of our faith is the book of Revelation. So turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to do it. We're just going to do it from the beginning, right? Let me read it to you. If you don't have your Bible, you can listen on it or it'll be on the screens. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation, just quickly, is actually the word apocalypse. And that's been hijacked by Hollywood to have all these sort of connotations. But what it literally means is a revealing. It's the same idea of you you pull back a curtain and then you can see. Does that make sense? Or a parting of the clouds and then, oh, the sun's there. So it is this idea that something that is there that you cannot see, now you can see it because it has been apocalypsed. Does that make sense? So we're about to have an apocalypse tonight with our eyes being open to who God is and what He wants us to know. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants things which must, must shortly take place. And He sent and signified it by His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that He saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Any like, any like revelation fans out there? You are just like, yeah, this is me. I've talked to a few of you over the last couple of weeks once, once you heard that I was preaching on this. It's been great to have conversations with people who are passionate about this and care about this. Um, look, you know, 
in all honesty, is there anyone out there who's a bit of a revelation avoider? <laughs> little old, maybe a little bit over here. You know, it's not uncommon for people to avoid this because they're not sure how to handle it. Um, but if there was one thing out of everything we share tonight that I really pray would happen, it is that you would find the courage and you would have a reason to actually engage with this book in a real and meaningful way. That something about tonight would make you just go, look, I don't know if I'm going to understand it all. I know it's not easy to interpret, but I can sense that there's something in there that I need that is for me. You miss so much when your faith is missing this book. It's like having a Ferrari sitting in your garage. <laughs> now, you don't want to be reckless with a Ferrari. It's very powerful and expensive. You can get yourself hurt. But you also don't want it sitting in your garage under a you know, dust cover while you drive around your like, 2002 Barina. You know what I mean? Like while there is this amazing thing just waiting for you to engage with it. So I want to encourage you, start to treat Revelation with the respect that it deserves. To help you out, we're going to read the entire first chapter of Revelation. <laughs> just to get you in it, you know, just to immerse ourselves in it. So we read up to verse 3. Let's now read from verse 4. And this is what it says. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. These are real churches, literal churches in the now modern day Turkey. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us. Don't ever forget while reading Revelation that it's from the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. It's a reference to Zechariah 12, worth reading when you get a moment. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. <laughs> Mate, getting real right here. John's vision of Christ. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So let me just stop here for a second. The person who is receiving this vision is not living in a utopian state of, you know, this new kingdom. He has witnessed the power of Jesus. He has seen Jesus' bodily resurrection. And then Jesus sends the Father. He's given the Holy Spirit who is guiding and leading his life, yet he still finds himself on a convict island in a place because of his faith where he has been isolated. So in the midst of that sort of like, you know, Jesus... <laughs> all powerful and everything, like what's going on? You know, this is at the end of the first century in the 90s. So we're talking many, many years since, since the church has been moving and Jesus has come. John is sort of like in this place where he's like, okay, I don't know what's going on, but I'm just going with what God tells me to do. And then Jesus rocks up. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyra, 
Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Anyone else think if they saw Jesus in all his glory, perhaps you would just be on your face as though dead in worship? Then he placed his right hand on me. Oh, to feel that hand on your shoulder. And said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Close chapter. <laughs> wow. You see what you're missing out on if you avoid Revelation? You know, already you can see how important the book of Revelation is in helping us shape our understanding of Jesus. We see Him in all His glory. We see Him reigning, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. We see Him in power. Think of the courage that that puts in a believer who is filled with His Spirit, knowing who our Jesus is. It is so important that we see Jesus as he wants us to see him in this book. Now, everyone agrees that this book is both complex and important. The challenging question for us to answer is, how do we understand it? <laughs> and we're going to do a survey of the book in a little bit, uh, in just a few moments, to go through some of those major things. But when it comes to understanding it, I'd like to welcome you to the exciting world of interpretation. <laughs> right on, so good. And we do this all day, every day, so you're, you're, a, you're a master, so don't stress. You've already got runs on the board. We do it when we you know, un try and understand what a person meant by what they said. We can't just take words at face value. We have to do some engagement with those to ask some questions about what they said or what was written so we can understand it as it was meant to be understood. So how much more important does interpretation become then when dealing with a text from another culture or time in history? because of the inevitable blind spots that we all have. There is so much about the first century world that you and I literally have no clue about. We're not exposed to it, it hasn't been a part of our upbringing, we haven't even studied it. For the majority of people, we only have the context with which we currently live on. But it is not enough to simply take the words filtered through your own context and understanding and then superimpose them onto your own situation. This will inevitably, inevitably lead to misinterpretations and misuse of the Bible. Make no mistake, you can interpret the Bible wrongly. Not every interpretation is equal. There are inferior interpretations of the Bible. There are incorrect readings of the Bible. And some of these are downright dangerous, as we've seen throughout history, with things being justified by people's understanding of the Bible. So 
what do you do then? Does that mean that the Bible doesn't speak to us today? That's not for us today? Not at all. The Bible absolutely provides the insight you need for your current situation. It is the answer to what you are needing an answer for. It is exactly where you need to go, but we have to handle it with respect. For example, Revelation can easily be a book that if you come to it with an idea, looking for confirmation, you will find the confirmation. Now, the beast could be anyone. could be your old English teacher. You can, you can sort of be like, I'm just looking for something that backs up my idea here. And then you start to read it, especially because of all this imagery and its symbolism and, what, and the way that it's written. You can easily make it whatever you want it to be. And this is sort of like, this is the path that most YouTube scholars have taken. You know, they are sure of themselves because they have come with an idea and then they have sought confirmation in the text. As true, as people who respect Scripture, we need to first come to the text and leave our you know, ideas and leave our premonitions and leave what we think we know at the door and say, all right, how do I understand this as it was meant to be understood? How did the person who was receiving this letter understand this? What did they think about, about this situation? You know, um, basic biblical interpretation is this, right? You visit a scripture and then you spend time with it and you ask questions and you do some understanding because even like the fact you're reading in English means that somebody took it from its original language, whether Greek or Hebrew, and put it into English words. And so there's a bit of work to do to understand what it actually meant. You're, you know, so you deal with it, you do what you can, and then through that, you see the situation, circumstances, and you extract from that those principles and the things that God wants to teach you that are beyond the circumstance. And they are always there. And then with those, you are then, after doing the work, you are then able to walk to your current situation and now start to ask the question, how and what applies from the scripture I just read into my current context? See, if you start superimposing what you read into your, your current context, after a great example is Pastor Brad this morning preached the best message ever. You have, if you weren't here, you have to watch it. it. It blew my mind. But it was about Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac as an act of obedience. Now, if you were to take that and superimpose it into your situation and say, well, God's calling me to live a life of obedience. Maybe He's calling me to sacrifice my child. You would have misinterpreted what God wanted you to understand from the Scripture. But this is what your favourite preachers do. All they do is they spend time and they draw from it the principles of what God wants us to understand, the principle of faith that, that Abraham has. And then what did Pastor Brad do? Sorry to use your story there, Pastor Brad, but it's just great for the illustration. He shared about how for him, God asked him to sacrifice something. And can you see here how it makes sense and now it fits in our current context? It's because the respect was there for the Scripture. So when it comes to the book of Revelation, we recognise it as apocalyptic literature. And this is a form of writing that was employed for a particular purpose. So first of all, around apocalyptic literature, let me just share a few things that we do know. It, we do know that this was well known to the first century audience. From about 200 BC to about 100 AD, apocalyptic literature was rife, probably mostly because of the oppression that they were under from the Romans and the, the kind of um, dramatic uh, writings that came out of that period. And it wasn't just biblical writings. Like we have Daniel, we have uh, Revelation, we have a bunch of the prophets having parts of it being apocalyptic, but there were also these non-biblical uh, writings that were very respected in their day, um, for Ezra, uh, one Enoch, these different books that were ap apocalyptic. And so the people that would have received this letter 
would have known and understood what was going on here. You see, apocalyptic literature is about being black and white. It is a stark difference between good and evil, right and wrong. It's not a nuanced pastoral approach to caring for an individual, as we see in, say, for example, Philemon, where Paul tactfully, carefully cares for this you know, delicate situation. There's no delicacy in apocalyptic literature. It is like, game on. There is good. There is evil. Which side are you on? You know what I'm saying? It's literally what the Bible, what Revelation is talking to us about. What? Whose side are you on? Who are you with? Good or evil? It makes it very clear. It makes you, it forces you to a place of decision. You can't sort of be like, oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. It's sort of like, no, division down the middle of that. One side or the other, who you're with. It's a heavenly perspective of our earthly circumstances. And you know, even Jesus himself helps us to understand how to engage with, pardon me, this kind of literature. You know the example we use of Jesus? A little interesting thought here. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 uses this uh, illustration of the abomination that causes desolation. So he's talking to John in the first century AD about the abomination that causes desolation. Now, every single Jew would know that the abomination that causes desolation was from the book of Daniel, and that prophecy was fulfilled in 167 BC with this guy whose name is Antioch Epiphanes, who basically came in, smashed down the altar, put up an altar to Zeus on top of the Jewish altar, and then brought in one of the, one of the most, um, you know, one of the unclean animals, a pig, and slaughtered it, slaughtered a pig to Zeus on the altar of the Jewish God. It was a desecration of this holy place. And so people had this picture, oh, that was that prophecy. And then Jesus uses it in, the, in a future tense. So one of the things we learn from this is that we can see prophecy and we can see these, uh, what is said in these, some of these books do have an immediate uh, you know, context. There are situations that, that line up with what that is, but they also have beyond that something that speaks to our future, something that understands what is yet to come. And Jesus himself helps us to understand that just because you see it this way, I want to use it in a way that will help you see far bigger than just an immediate local uh, issue. And it's going to become now a cosmic reality, the future at a cosmic level. So the question now I just want to ask before we jump into going through Revelation is, how has Revelation been interpreted over the last 2,000 years? Well, when it comes to interpreting Revelation, there's four main ways that it has been interpreted throughout history. And a real helpful graph, uh, you know, from, um, from a guy called Gorman, Michael Gorman, is helpful here. And so I asked our team to put this up. And basically, there's these two axes that help us understand the ways that it's been interpreted. So there's an axis that sees the text as a code and sees the text as a lens, whether it is literal talking about physical people, places, and events in history, or whether it's talking allegorically and it's talking about evil in general and using these things to help us understand, you know, the, the, um, the ideas surrounding this stuff. And then we also have this other axis, which is a past focus uh, or a future focus. And so these, within this realm, you have all these different interpretations. The four interpretations that have been mostly used throughout history. The first one is the preterist, which deals with events up to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. So for them, they would see, those that interpret it as a preterist would interpret it as code. 
It's talking about specific incidences, but it's only talking about the ones in the past. So it doesn't have any bearing on our future. It is literally about everything that, that, that needed to happen or everything that was talked about in Revelation was about up until 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Jesus is referring to what has happened. Another way is the historicist dealing with successive stages of church history, which is probably the most popular with the fathers and the early church. A lot of them saw that this must be the outworking of things as it's coming. But the challenge was as time went on, uh, you have to keep reinventing what you thought was that because then something else happens which might be that. And so, you know, even in our current day, people are like, yep, Hitler's the Antichrist and the end times are here. And then as time goes on, it's like, no, nope, now it's Stalin. Now it's, you know, it goes through all the history. Now, now it's Putin, right? So it's easy to put a person on uh, a situation, but we need to understand it is more than that. The Futurist, which is um, basically all the book except for the letters to the churches, is about what will happen, the events surrounding the return of Christ at the end of history. So all these things are about to be unleashed in sort of one continuous wave in the lead up to Jesus returning. And then there is a redemptive historical view, which basically symbolic is symbolic presentation of the battle between good and evil. So these are some of the ways that people approach the text. And I'm not here to tell you which is the right way. In fact, I'll talk to you a little bit about why it's very important that we don't come at this text with an absolute confidence about our own particular interpretation style. But before we do, what I want to do is I want to just go through the book of Revelation real quick. And through it, I just want to, um, as things come up, use it to sort of spur a few thoughts about some of the areas. Because I was picturing like, how do I do (laughs) end time series and not miss you know, all of these big things that people would like to know about when it comes to end time. So we're just going to sort of go through it and draw out a few things, and then you guys can go through it in more detail in your own time. Does that sound cool? Yeah. So chapter 1 to 3, it's Jesus' message to the seven churches. It's basically a warning against compromise and an encouragement to be faithful to the end. Chapter 4 and 5 is in God's throne room. John is just like... <laughs> I remember Wayne Alcorn once saying, you know, we think we know what heaven's going to be like, but for the first 10,000 years, you're just going to be like... And I thought, that's great. It's just going to be mind-blowing. So John is having this overwhelming experience and everyone is worshipping and then these seven seals come out and John realises that no one's worthy to open them. And he starts to cry. These are the prophecies of old. These are, this is what we need, but no one is worthy. And then a voice says, the lamb is worthy. The, the God is worthy. The, Jesus is worthy. Turn around and then he sees, what does he see? Jesus in the form of a slain lamb. The only one worthy is Jesus, the slain lamb. And then between chapters 6 and 16, there are these three sets of seven. There are lots of symbolic numbers, numbers in Revelation. We don't have time to go through them all right now, but seven is uh, very important in the book of Revelation. It's about completion. And these, the first one of these seven sets, or three sets of seven are seals. Then there's trumpets, then there's bowls. And some people who maybe have like particularly a future Um, coded understanding of the text would see these as 21 consecutive things that are going to take place one after the other in the lead up to the return of Christ. Others may interpret it as three perspectives of the same seven um, judgments that are handed down, but there are different perspectives there that you can have of this. Um, Between chapters 6 and 8, we see the seven seals. This is where you hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Again, you picture it with the word apocalypse. 
and all the fire and flames. And the reason is, I think, that people have associated with that is because they are, they are basically the unleashing of conquest, war, famine, plagues. It's real deal, hardcore stuff here that people experience and puts pressure on uh, the world. The fifth seal is the martyrs before God. All these martyrs who have given up their life for their faith, and this is what God says, just wait until all those that need to join your ranks have been martyred. <laughs> it's not time yet. Wow, what an encouragement, right? And how, how amazing. You know what? The, the people who are most honoured in heaven, the martyrs. We should be willing to lay down our life for our God. Sixth seal, it's earthquake, and it's the day of the Lord. Whenever the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, and let me just say this, right? Revelation is the most, um, it uses the Old Testament the most of any other book. Um, the, the, the book of Revelation literally has out of its, let me try and find where I wrote this, out of its like over 400 verses, 278 of them refer to the Old Testament. There are over 500 references to the Old Testament in just the book of Revelation alone. To put that into context, Paul, through all of his letters, referenced the Old Testament about 200 times. So step one to interpreting Revelation, read your Bible. You need to know what the Old Testament says. Otherwise, how can you understand what it's being used to communicate? And the sixth seal is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment, the day when all is revealed and that which is evil is exposed. And it's a day that those who are evil or who have sided with evil dread because they will be revealed, will be revealed and they will be held accountable for their evil. And the day of the Lord in, in this one with the seven seals, they hide from God. Then there's this seventh seal. I love this one. It gets opened, and then it just says, heaven was silent for 30 minutes. And then someone brought out the seven trumpets. It's like, yeah, but what happened with the seventh seal, right? <laughs> the seven trumpets come out, and they're a parallel of the seven bowls, but with an Egypt, uh, an Exodus theme. So they talk a lot about hail, blood, sea, locusts. So a lot of things that we see in the Exodus story being released on the earth. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture of God um, bringing His people, like with the... Uh, like with the Exodus, his people out of the slavery and the bondage of evil and into the, um, the place that he's called them to. But people, even in the midst of that, like Pharaoh, keep changing their mind. I want evil. I want darkness. I want to return to myself. And God, in his desire to see redemption, puts this pressure there, but it keeps getting refused. There are many who come to faith, but many who don't. Uh, the trumpets go through uh, uh, many, many chapters. We've got the Lamb Scroll, which talks about um, this particular scroll that John's asked to eat and it tastes like honey but it's bitter in his stomach and, and then we talk about these two witnesses that are these lampstands that burn before God and cannot be extinguished and again depending on the view you take some people would see them as literal two prophets who will come into the earth at some point and they will speak the truth other people interpret it in light of Revelation chapter 1 when the churches were referred to as the lampstands and as a picture of you know, the church and the number two in the Bible talks about two being required for the, um, the testimony of a witness. So people see it as the church as a whole standing up. And then the crazy thing happens, the beast comes. The beast, ladies and gentlemen, conquers the witnesses and kills them. What? No. Are you serious? It's terrible. But guess what? God brings them back to life, y'all. Resurrection power, yeah. Restoration, am I right? You know what it is? It's a picture of the people of God following the pattern of our Lord. He didn't rule 
with a sword in his hand. He ruled with a sword in his mouth. We follow Jesus who was willing to lay down his life for the truth and was slain. You know, the beast, we talk about signs and symbols. I'm just going to keep going through this um, quite quickly. In, uh, in chapter 12, we have this cosmic battle, this really intense one with this dragon, seven heads. So cool, right? There's this woman, she's giving birth, and the dragon's like, I need to kill that child. And it's a picture, I know, this is straight up evil, but it is actually a picture of the, um, of the Christmas story. Jesus, what happened when he was first born? Herod, kill all the children. Under two, snuff it out at its birth. But the, the child grows up and doesn't get killed by the dragon. Um, there's this cosmic battle. And basically the big picture here is that behind all of the evil forces you see on earth is a real evil spiritual reality. And it's actually the plans and the purposes of this evil realm that are pushing and dictating and leading people into their evil deeds. There's this earthly battle after this dragon and there is these two beasts, a beast from the sea, a beast from the land, who sort of act in a way as henchmen for the devil, for the dragon. Um, and we, this is where we get that idea of the mark of the beast. So again, like I said, I'm going to try and touch on heaps of little things here as we go through it, but the mark of the beast. And, you know, pop culture has told us many things. When the barcode came out, that was the mark of the beast. When ATMs, and there was a cashless society. That was the mark of the beast. And there's many ways that it can be interpreted and I don't want to make light of people's attempts to interpret them because God, Jesus says to understand these things. But for example, the first idea that someone gives you doesn't necessarily mean that that's the correct thing. You know, a real convincing option, for example, is that it is actually an anti-Shema. Now, if you know what the Shema is, it is the most known prayer of the Jewish people. It is a prayer that all Jews knew by heart. They prayed it every single day. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Can you see how God is talking about helping your children understand? Put it ever before you. Put your hope and trust in the one true God. Then it says this, number eight. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You know, the, places, the place that people take the mark of the beast is on their hands and on their foreheads. An allegiance issue. Who are you aligned with? Are you with God? Or have you chosen to align yourself with the anti-God, with the anti-Christ, with that which is evil and not of God? And again, Revelation brings us to a place where we have to ask the question about which side do we want to be on? Goes on in chapter 14, talks about the Lamb's army, this 144,000 people that have been protected. And, this, and the angels are sent from this army and the eternal gospel is preached, the Bible says. And the call is to turn from Babylon, to turn from evil, to worship God. And you have a choice. It's presented to the people. And, but, and after this comes a judgment. After the choice is given. And the ju in, this judgment is explained by two harvests. The harvest of the faithful, a gathering of, the, of grain, which is a harvest of the faithful, and a gathering of wine to be pressed, which is those that are intoxicated with evil. 
There's seven bowls, and they, these represent seven divine judgments. Again, the Exodus theme is seen here, and this is where we hear that term Armageddon. It talks about the, the armies of the enemy coming out to a place called Armageddon, which is a literal place in Israel. So some people with that, that futurist perspective would say that there is actually going to be a battle that will take place in that physical location. Um, and those that have a different perspective would see that differently as well. Um, interestingly, though, there is no battle. Jesus comes and he speaks. And when he speaks, it's the end. <laughs> King of kings and Lord, Lord rocks up. Before anyone starts like trying to fight him, he just speaks and, they, and he, he reigns supreme. And the seventh bowl is facing God's justice, the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated forever. In chapter 17 to 18, uh, basically evil forces, uh, talking about evil forces behind evil rulers, and it basically says Babylon's falling. This evil way is going to disappear and it's going to be judged. You want to get away from it. Get out of the city. Don't associate with that which is evil. Don't engage in things that exploit others. Don't align yourself with the things of God instead of aligning yourself with the things of this evil age. Chapters 19 and 20, the final battles. And Jesus comes out covered in blood. Some would say that's the blood of his enemies. Some would say that is the blood that he has shed. His sword is in his mouth. And his judgment is on those who pledge allegiance to evil and resist God's kingdom. Basically, what God is doing is he is bringing history to a place where evil is going to be dealt with once and for all. Justice is to be served because the new creation that we read about in chapter 20, 20 and 21 and 22 is a place where there is no evil. Now, I do need to just quickly backtrack here into chapter 20 because there is this particular statement that Jesus makes about these battles. There are two battles that seem to be broken up by what is called a millennium or a thousand year reign of Jesus. And I want to just quickly talk to this because this is one of those things that as soon as you start studying end times, people will start engaging with. So we do have a little uh, illustration here. There's a few perspectives. There's the post-millennial and the pre-millennial. And then there is this one in the middle, which is amillennial, which means non-millennial. Basically, it uh, doesn't subscribe to either, either perspective. So the post-millennial is that Jesus will reign for a thousand years with things becoming ever increasingly like heaven on earth until that place where Jesus returns, takes his, uh, or returns and the people of God rule with God in uh, this, this, God, this um, new creation. Um, then you have the, pr- the pre-millennial, which believe that Jesus will return um, and that we will, as uh, believers, um, and within premillennial, there's a few different perspectives. Those that believe of, in a thing called the rapture, which is from 1 Thessalonians 4, that that idea is, um, is formulated from, that there is this premillennial reign where Jesus himself takes away the believers and then he rules physically on earth and then comes into a second battle. And then we have this amillennial which sits in the middle. Now, I just want to share a couple of perspectives on this. The view of history for the um, post-millennial was probably overly optimistic. Everything's just going to get better now that Jesus has come. And what started to happen is people started to be like, oh my gosh, how is this happening when there is still so much death and destruction? This mustn't be what God planned. The, on the opposite side, the premillennial perspective is that things are going to just get worse in the human story until one day Jesus himself is going to rock up and put everything right. And we hear a lot about that. We, especially when we see calamities and we see destruction, we think, man, maybe that's what it is. Things are just getting worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes and sets everything right. When it comes to the positive out- outcomes, the post-millennials who think, you know, Jesus has partnered with us to see things ever increasing, 
It creates this sense of agency. I can do something to advance the kingdom. I can be used by God to see the kingdom move forward. And that's great because it actually engages us. We don't sit back as observers. Um, and the positive of the premillennial is this great faith in divine intervention. At the end of the day, it's not me. It's God who is going to save uh, this world. And we have great hope in that. But the negative outcomes of both these perspectives is that when it's human agency, you think you can force the kingdom of God to come when you want it to. And this is responsible for things such as like the Crusades, for example, this idea of we have to convert everyone. We have to go on this mission to see everyone become uh, converted. And on the flip side with premillennialism, the, the uh, negative effect of that perspective is there's a sense of fatalism. I can't do anything about what's happening. I just trust that God will return and sort it all out. And also escapism, the idea that one day I'm just going to be pulled out of my situation so I don't have to be concerned with where I am right now. You can see how these perspectives have strengths, have weaknesses, and have to be tried and tested and engaged with, with respect. The amillennial position basically would see a bit of a convergence of these, and it doesn't harbour sort of on the point of, um, of taking things too literally, and it basically sees an existence of both kingdoms until the time Jesus comes back. In one sense, it takes a step back from the whole situation and says, we're not sure of what's going on there. So the main point, though, with all this is that when Jesus does return, he will deal with evil and vindicate his followers. Now, we need to finish up, but I just want to share the last thought here from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 5. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I was going to ask the keys to come back up. And just as we sort of take a deep breath after sort of flying through Revelation, and we did. We flew through Revelation, and in one short setting, we can't do justice to the complexity of these conversations. But to help seed your thought about where some of these words and ideas come from that people engage with when it comes to their understanding of end things, a lot of it is from the book of Revelation. So what do you do when you approach Revelation? How do you engage with it? Not leave it, but do it respectfully. You know, my, my deepest belief is this. Humility is the key. You just need to come to God with humility. You know, for me, a massive red flag is whenever, whenever anyone is so sure that they know what the truth is about these things, which are so complex. Whenever, whenever anyone is that sure, I'm a bit like, okay, like I'm happy to hear you, but I'm, I'm careful about believing everything that you say because when you are that sure of yourself, you actually stop seeing blind spots. You stop seeing areas that you are unaware of. You, you don't notice those things that actually maybe aren't right because you are so sure. There is a humility that needs to be taken. <clears throat> and I actually think when we look at this map of where people are, there is something to be understood from each of those. And we are to engage with that and start to go on a journey of discovery. It's tempting, especially to those who are drawn to defined and clear understandings of existence, to, place, to find solace in certainty and to be drawn to those who have the most confidence in their position. You know, 
humility is an awareness of our place in this journey of discovery. He is God, I am not. I don't get to decide who God is. I'm only able to discover God as He reveals Himself to us. And this is why Scripture is so important. And not Scripture as we want to read it, but Scripture as it was intended for us to read while we respect it and go on the journey of understanding. You know, just to summarise um, the last couple of weeks here, you know, I just think Revelation 21 and 22 is the most, is the best way and the best place to, to land, which is funny because obviously God felt that as well because it's the last chapters of the Bible. But what the last two chapters do for me is it actually gives me confidence in everything that came before that I might not understand. Because what chapters 21 and 22 do is they talk about God's goal. What's His plan? What is He working towards? You know what? Evil breaks God's heart. Do you know, I've always interpreted justice because we're in a pretty just society as something that I want to avoid. I don't want to get busted. If I go to a police station, I'm like, I'm instantly nervous. You know what I'm saying? I haven't done anything wrong, but I'm just nervous because we live in a relatively just society. This all changed for me one day in the Philippines. I was walking through a slum and this man um, was talking to the missionary that we were with and sharing a story because there was a a boy the same age as my older brother in a casket with an open uh, glass window. And this man was explaining that about three or four days earlier, their son had been walking through the streets and a truck had squashed him between another truck and he had died. This man started crying because the truck driver paid the policeman 50 bucks and left. And this man lost his son, who at the time was 34. A big part of helping their family survive. No one's accountable for that. This person paid 50 bucks. Is that what my son is worth? And I had this realisation that justice and judgment isn't something we should fear. Judgment and justice is something we should hope for. Look at the evil in our world. Look at what is going on. Literally today on the news, you would have seen atrocities committed against humans. People that God created and loves. Can you hear God's heart breaking for the brokenness of this world? He doesn't want us to live in this perpetual state of evil, forever subject to these powers. God Himself has devised the way in which the banished person may be brought back to Him. He devised the way in which all creation can come uh, and be a part of His redemptive plan. And it is in these last things. Where no evil can hide from God. Where nothing that is against God or opposes God can stand in His presence. Where He casts it out of His presence and He removes it from His new creation. And we have a choice. Whose side are we on? Are we with God or are we with evil? That's literally what this book is all about. Which side are you on? And when we have the picture of what God's heart is, we can, our hearts identify with that. That's what I was created for. That's what I was made for. To be in relationship with God, to be in perfect community, to have um, what I'm reading in, in Revelation 21 and 22. That's what I need. And so when we have that hope, you see now why it's Christian hope? When we have that hope that all rights will be wrong, that nothing will get past God's gaze, where He will hold to account those things that are evil, those deeds that were done that were evil, will all be pulled before Jesus in judgment. When we have an understanding that our hope is God will deal with that, 
We have this hope that allows us to go through whatever those end times look like. Pre, post, trib, no trib, whatever. Whatever the, the, the actual timeline of the end times comes to be, we know that that's not what we're focused on. We're focused on the fact that that's another chapter in the story of human history to the closing of the historical book and to the opening of a new creation. And we live with a true north that says, I know what I was created for. I know where God's taken me. And while I understand that, I will let it inform my life and live my life to see people come to know Jesus. And just lastly, um, there's a couple of resources I just want to quickly put up that I found really helpful in this. The first one um, is a book that's probably the most referenced book in, in scholarship around this area. And... And the second one is sort of the strongest commentary. Get the short commentary. The first commentary was 1,300 pages. Um, so he shortened it to about 500. So academically, that's some places you can go to have this discussion. And then pastorally, practically, where do I go next? Christy mentioned last week a great resource in Daryl Johnson, uh, a book called Discipleship on the Eds, or he has podcasts as well. And I also do know that the Bible Project guys uh, on YouTube, especially for you younger people, are really great at helping to take a big book <laughs> And with drawings, make sense of it. And so I'd encourage you to look at some of these things. You know, I just want to use Revelation right now as I I believe God intended it to be used to bring us to a point of decision. You know, being a Christian isn't about being a good person, coming to our club and doing certain things and not doing certain things. It's so much bigger than that. It's about your allegiance to God, who is good, He's holy, He's righteous, He's loving and He's good. Is that, is that where you want to locate yourself? In the Creator, the eternal Creator who is relational? Is that, and I know, you're in here right now and you have a sense in your gut that that's right. But the temptations and the drawing of the evil one to bring you into things that you think or He says will be pleasurable, ideal, fun, you know, all of those things. You find yourself choosing what I want. I choose not to submit my life to God and you side with what is evil. It's a deception. None of that evil brings about the life that you're looking for. The enemy, Jesus says, comes to rob, to kill, to destroy, to steal, to kill, to destroy. But Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and life for the full. And I'm here to tell you tonight, There is no one that can give you life apart from Jesus. He is the only one that has access to life and life to the full, to eternal life. You know what? John 3.16, one of the most well-known verses is a verse about eschatology. (laughs) For God so loved the world, the broken world, this world that has been affected by evil and sin, His heart's breaking. He loved this world that He came, that He sent His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish is the second death perishing separated condemned away from God's presence you wouldn't experience that but you would have eternal life and so tonight what I want to do is I want everyone just to close their eyes it's wherever you are right now I want you just to close your eyes and let's just get black and white here right now which side are you on are you with God I'll tell you a secret. You don't have to be perfect to be with God. You don't have to be good to be with God. You don't have to have done certain things. 
God is literally like, I'll take you as you are. Read the Gospels. The same Jesus that has blazing eyes and bronze feet and hair white as wool. The same Jesus that is in all His glory is the same Jesus that bent down and wrote in the sand while the people wanted to throw stones at the woman caught in adultery. Is the same Jesus that looked at the rich young ruler and loved him and then said to him, you know, Jesus tonight, He loves you so much and His heart is not that you would suffer, not that you would be in pain, not that the effects of evil would dominate your life, but that you would be born again. And this new kingdom that you've been rescued into from the dominion of darkness is the kingdom of the Son in whom there is forgiveness, the redemption, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way, if any of you are in Christ Jesus, the old has gone, gone and the new has come. You are a new creation. Right now with every eye closed, if you're on the wrong side of this equation, all you have to do is in your heart say, Jesus, I choose you. I don't know what I'm meant to do next, but I just choose you. I want to come into relationship with you. And I want to run from Babylon because Babylon is falling. I want to run from the patterns and the things of this world into your hands. So with every eye closed right now, can I just ask you wherever you're at, if that's you, just while eyes are closed, I've got just a couple of people looking around. Can you just raise your hand and say, that's me tonight. I'm choosing to leave the dominion of darkness and come into the kingdom of the sun. If that's you and tonight, you want to associate and come under the Lordship of of Jesus and understand that you're on the right side of this equation. Wherever you are right now, can you just give us a quick wave just so I know who to pray for? Yeah, over here, so good. Who else tonight? Yeah, over here, so good. Who else tonight? It's like, I want to be on the right side of this. Yeah, up here as well. What begins tonight in your heart is the new creation, is the beginning of the light pushing back the darkness in your own life, and through you into the lives of others up there. Fantastic. Anyone else right now? And tonight, if you would just choose to align yourself with Jesus, you experience God now at work with great confidence and hope for the future that He has planned. One last time before we pray, just raise your hand wherever you're at if that's you. Well, everyone that raised your hand, I want you to repeat a prayer after me over here, yeah? Simple prayer, inviting Jesus to be your Lord and Saviour. So with every eye closed, let's all pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I know that you love me, that you gave your life up for me. Tonight, I give my life back to you. I choose to align myself with your will. I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. And I have anticipation and hope for an eternal future with you. From this day forward, walk with me, talk to me, and live in me, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more info about Horizon Church, please visit our website at hz.church. Have a fantastic day and we hope to see you again soon.